name is Mathieu Ricard. I've been living for half uh, 50 years in the Himalaya and then I became a student of great Tibetan master like uh, Konkyuru Moshe, Digo Kensiro Moshe and others, and his son is the Dalai Lama. And um, what else? Yes, staying there, studying, doing some retreat. And then later on, at Sichuan Monastery, we started some humanitarian projects. And now to something called Karuna Sichuan, we had more than 300,000 people in northern India, Nepal and Tibet. And also I tried my best to, to be, you know, serving for the preservation of the Tibetan and Himalayan cultural and spiritual heritage. Mm -hmm. So I did some books, photo books, written books, all kinds of Wonderful. crazy stuff. <laughs> I wonder if I could ask you first for your sense of what Tibetan Buddhism tells us about the power and potential of imagination. Not much <laughs> that I know. <laughs> well, uh, it depends what you call imagination. Of course, everyone uses the, his or her mind to consider you know, the future and imagine what it is just in worldly terms. You know, too much anticipating the future is range among the worldly concerns. Okay. Hope and fear. When there are eight, gain and loss, hope and f uh, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and obscurity, and praise and criticism. But they boil down to hope and fear. So a practitioner will avoid ruminating the past and anticipating too much the future. So therefore, not too much brooding about the future. That kind of imagination will be discouraged as a source of inner mental scattering and distraction. Okay. Now, of course, anyone who is alive needs to have a vision for the future, a sense of direction. And then we stress the importance of first the motivation. Am I doing that for just myself or also for others? Is it for the sh smaller number of others or the bigger, largest number? And is it for the short term or the long term? And ideally, our words, actions, thoughts, plan, imagination should be for the greatest benefit of the greatest number of people for the long term. Mm -hmm. So in that, of course, you have to consider what could be the that fate of the, of the people. But rather than pure imagination, Buddhism stresses on what we call valid cognition, try to, uh, it's a kind of analytical part of Buddhist investigation, which is, okay, let's see clearly what are the causes and conditions involved. Knowing that we start from an altruistic motivation, what will be the best possible outcome according to the knowledge that might be limited what I have, but with the certainty that I'm generating an altruistic motivation. So you cannot check, you cannot be sure what's going to happen, but you can be, you can make sure to that you check your motivation. Mm -hmm. So that's more like on, based on analytic, analytical mind and some degree of wisdom if you have. Then when that is clear, the aspiration to accomplish a worthy goal follows the motivation, the sort of determination to do it, to engage in the journey to actually bring happiness to others. So then other factors like perseverance, determination, 
mm-hmm. you know, resilience, courage come in place. So in that sense, you could say it's more based on, on common sense, sound reasoning, compassion, and if possible, wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's another aspect in the practice which is not really imagination, but maybe related to that, which is visualization. Mm. You might visualize all sentient beings and then train again and again to generate compassion, loving kindness and compassion. So you imagine them, but it's really creating a mental image, Mm. not just imagining what the future could be. There's nothing to do with that. So that's why it's probably more proper to call it visualization. Then you would visualize some wisdom deities, which are not uh, some deities living somewhere in a, sitting somewhere out of space, but the uh, manifestation of the Buddha's wisdom, of the Buddha's compassion, of the Buddha's power to help the beings. So you have different deities, and each of those deities, their aspect, uh, you know, their how many face, arms, feet they might have, is highly symbolic. Say for, for like. The Buddha of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara, the four harms represent the four boundless uh, loving kindness, boundless compassion, boundless rejoicing, and boundless uh, um, impartiality. So it's not just like uh, you know a strange sort of guy with four harms. It has, uh, and and the practitioner when visualizing is supposed to remember to, rem- to be aware of that all the time, mm-hmm. so that to derive the qualities in associated with that. Uh, for the for progressing on the path, so again, it's not really imagination, mm. but the power of visualization to well, that's more like creating those creating mental reality. images and saying, okay, I'm not just I'm not just imagining that, I'm actually this is my real nature because I have the Buddha nature mm. within. So precisely, we'll tell ourselves this is not some superimposition of my own fancy imagination. I'm just actually a tool that helps me to recover my Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. So actually we would probably say it's not some fips of imagination. It is actually rediscovering your true nature. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's like that. So besides that, I don't know. So that, that, that ability to, to visualize things very powerfully and to then, that, that leads to the man of oh, being and, becoming and manifest. The, yeah, the process of uh, training in that, again, is not just wild imagination, it's the capacity of uh, concentration yeah. applied to <clears throat> generating mental images. You know, it's not, you know, you don't uh, imagine any, uh, something, just whatever comes no, to no, your no. mind. So, it's so very determined by what it's supposed to be. Mm. Uh, you just create a mental image and associate with that the qualities of mm, that. Mm. But do you think, in terms of in terms of the world around us and the difficulties that we have and the kind of future that we need to create, that actually, if we are able to to visualize the future that we like a, a just, a fair, a sustainable future, is the ability to visualize that something? Yes. That has no. Of course. Useful? No. I mean, that's more like a, we call it uh, investigation, okay. analytical mind. And then, of course, there are inventors. I don't know if they are Buddhist inventors or not, but you know, there's part of creativity in inventing new solutions. Mm-hmm. Again, Buddhists is not at all into artistic imagination. They, are, they, they do all the art is ruled by very precise rules, is, yeah. like icons, you know. Like, so all the deities have proportion, which means something. 
and you don't just throw whatever comes in your mind. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, in a way, so maybe that's why there's a lot of mental activities linked with mental image, with, imagine, with thinking of the future, yeah. which foreseeing which would be the best direction to take. But imagination has also this idea of sort of uh, letting your mind go wild. And mm. so at some point, people who study creativity, you know, it has nothing to do with Buddhism. Mm. Uh, in there's a guy called Barry Scott Kaufman who said wired to create. Yeah, I, I know. Yes. So he says that the state of creativity is actually mutually exclusive with focused attention. So you have to let your mind very vast and open, and then some creative idea come up, and then you see some connection that you didn't see before. So that of course happens anyway. If you are a writer, write on a subject, suddenly puff out of the blue, two ideas that you didn't know how to connect very well, you see why they are connected. Mm. But I don't, I would not call that imagination myself. Mm-hmm. It's more like, um, you know, a deep investigation that goes sometimes beyond the linear discursive reasoning. Okay. So something comes up. But it's also the result of the thing that you have done intensely to analytical mean, but didn't come to some kind of state of resolution. Mm-hmm. So you let it sort of brood, and then solution comes up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you call if you, if you, if you call it uh, well, you could call it define that as imagination. But you know, usually, what common language it seems more imagination is imagining something that does not that doesn't have to be attuned to reality, for instance. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's absolutely no go in Buddhism. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's called invalid it's, cognition. Yeah. So that kind of imagination is not considered to be useful. But if it's just to use the power of mind to either let uh, innovative idea or, or, or sort of um, connections or concept come up at the surface, or use the creative, the power of mind to visualize clear images, so all that, if you call that imagination, fine, but it's not what usually okay. common language Calls imagination, I guess. I don't know what's your def- what is your definition of imagination? <clears throat> I guess the context that I'm looking at it in is that a lot of my work is around what do we do about climate change? What do we do about these big challenges? Okay. And it feels like part of the problem we have is that people really struggle to imagine what the world could be if if we made yes. the necessary changes. Yes, so, okay. So, so that's uh, fearful about yeah, it. that's that's fine. Let's do it. That's trying to see what actually it could be. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a noble aspect of imagination. Yeah. I myself have just come from a place where I met a lot of uh, great environmentalists. Uh, okay. I was with Christina Guterres and okay. Joan Rockstrom. Okay, wonderful. So yes, they are all, all the time making sort of models yeah. what could be the future. So you, if it's that's a kind of a good noble side of imagination. Mm-hmm. But they also say there's so much unknown, but of course you can imagine different possibilities. So that aspect, yes, okay. I think that's, that's compatible with the Buddhist part because it's more about trying to figure out what this future could be, but in a, not in a, say, a imaginative, romantic kind of way, yeah. but the closest possible of what could actually happen. Yeah. So it's more like, a, again, it's, I think analytical mind is... A, yeah, no, probably closer okay. but to talk that with an analytical mind that is not only based of the, what we know now 
leaving open for unknowns, for mm -hmm. sudden changes, so for new ideas and concepts. Yeah, so that, you know, in a way, scientific discovery is about imagining new way of seeing mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. and also asking, imagining new way of asking new questions. Mm -hmm. I remember meeting a Nobel Prize of Physics, Murray Gilman, who told me that uh, when you have a mathematical or physical problem, it's, it's, not, it's not difficult to solve it, just takes good mathematics. So once the question has been asked, it's, it's easy to solve the... Mm -hmm. But what is really difficult and creative is to ask the new and right questions. Mm -hmm. So not just to ask a question and solve the problem, that is a, it's, it's just routine. <laughs> So in that sense, yes. Mm. Um, there's a lot of research that suggests that digital technologies like smartphones and social media are having a really disastrous impact on our attention spans. Yes, it does. I wonder how you personally manage a relationship with those technologies and, and how do you observe them well, impacting... It has been shown that multitasking is bad for everything, mm. even for multitasking. <laughs> to put it clearly, so your all your cognitive tests are worse than the average, and even the speed of which to change tasks, so mm. which is self-defeating. Uh, well, I try to use it as a tool for activities that are useful, but um, I've never been. Although there's a Facebook in my name, Twitter in my name, but I've never been. I don't know how to get on Facebook, and I don't know how to get on Twitter, and I will never do. Yeah. This being said, there are people uh, you know, using the material I, I have in the books, photos, and mm. to feed that up, but I, I have no interest. So I use uh, email and internet for research, for communicating, and I try to minimize, though it's certainly more invasive than before we used to send letters. So it has, a, of course, clear advantages too. Like we, I don't think we will have done this helping 200,000 people every year. Mm without this uh, new means of communication. Mm -hmm. So, we can communicate about the projects, and so that's good, but surfing on the internet just for the sake of surfing, I never do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spend already too much time on what is actually useful, but certainly I don't want to do more than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't enjoy it, and I don't... I will never do a computer game or stuff like that. Have you, I, I always wonder when, you know, 25 years ago, I lived at Lama Salkapa Institute in Italy for yeah. several years, and when there was no computers, no smartphones, have you yeah. noticed that, 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 that since all those things well, have come course. in... I mean, you look at somewhere, and everybody, seven, six percent out of seven are looking at their iPhone, so you wonder how life was before. And, but do, when do I was you, in Darjeeling for seven years, you know, I, I used to get an aerogram or letter from France every month mm -hmm. and send one myself to the family, I'm fine, I hope you are fine, and that's it. And do you notice any difference in terms of when you teach meditation? Or I don't teach meditation. Or in the monasteries? I do don't do anything like that, but there's certainly a, a difference <clears throat> in the, the way you use your time. Mm -hmm. So much time goes into that, and you don't have that time to practice and meditate and do some... And gone with people or whatever. Do you think that if, if the Buddha had had Twitter, he would have been able to become enlightened if he had been tweeting updates on his progress all the time? No, no, just uh, I think it's not applicable. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think it's possible now to to to? to uh, yeah, those, part of it is to give it up. So yeah, I think the Buddha might have got rid of Twitter with his palace. Mm. 
what happens, do you think, in their culture when we lose our capacity for attention? Well, there's, uh, there's been studies about that. And there's uh, a lady called Sherry Tuckle. She studied like somehow being alone in the crowd. And uh, kids that says, oh, I'm not ready to have a real conversation, maybe one day. Mm. Because, you know, these exchanges are not conversation. They're just communication or basic things. But conversation between humans involve you know, everything. The facial expression, tone of voice bodily posture, you know, smiles, whatever, yeah. or angry face, and, uh, and it's totally uh, disembodied in the other way, so that's uh, drastically uh, impoverishing the human relationship. And then also opening the door to the fact that uh, if you say something very uh, rash to someone or, or rude, you can immediately see the reaction and you, you either say sorry or you, yeah. you change your tone and you ask for forgiveness. But you know, on the internet, there's nobody, there's nobody reacting on the spot. I mean, you don't have that immediate feedback on front of your face of someone who mm. looks at you and says, well, what is this incredibly rude person? Mm -hmm. I wish you don't want to feel to be judged like that. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, opened the doors for cyberbullying or all kinds of stuff. So it's a very uh, impoverishing and maybe leading to more extreme forms of communication mm -hmm. on all sides, you know. Mm passion and hatred and whatever. I've been reading quite a lot of the neuroscience about attention and, and, and stuff recently, and a lot of them get to the stage where one I read the other day said neuroscientists have become obsessed in recent years with Buddhists. And a lot of them kind of end up looking towards Buddhism for around attention. No, I think this is just a bit silly. There's just been a nice collaboration. Mm. And what have we learned from, from, from what the neuroscience tells us about attention and, and Buddhism, do we think? What, what are they it's not attention about Buddhism. Buddhism does practice those qualities and then they can be applied in any kind of setting which is non-Buddhist, of course. If there's no Buddhist attention, there's Buddhist people specifically cultivating attention, emotional yeah. balance, compassion. So, they happen to be Buddhist, but the attention, the compassion and the emotional balance is... Uh, is something about human nature. Mm. So yes, both Buddhist practice and neuroplasticity said if you train in attention, if you train in compassion, and if you train in emotional balance, you get better at it. Mm. Mm. You get more pro-social, you are more attentive, etc. So there's no mystery. Everything else is a result of training, learning how to read and write and play the piano. Now we train with compassion. Mm. 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 So. This, but the fact is interesting is that uh, both Buddhist practitioners and uh, neuroscientists were happy to collaborate and that somehow it was not just to prove Buddhism, this is a ridiculous uh, purpose, but it is it nice that it's shown that in many cases the training, uh, the type of training that Buddhists can offer actually works mm -hmm. and does change the brain functionally and structurally within weeks and then the more you do the more you change mm -hmm. so there's plenty of literature the book i just came out with the neuroscientist wolf singer beyond the self mm -hmm. uh, in french it used to it, it was called uh, meditation and the brain different title but there's a huge chapter on that okay and there's uh, with richard davidson and antoine lutz we did an article in the scientific american on the, the effect of meditation and there's plenty of others mm, mm, uh, mm. books about that like richard davidson the 
uh, emotional life of your brain and recently with Daniel Goldman he uh, also uh, released another book and there was uh, another one called change your mind change your brain with the, it was a mind and life meeting and then Sharon Bigley is journalist science journalist uh, made it as a book okay. so anyway there's both in popular literature and in scientific mm -hmm. literature there's um, enormous amount of data now mm -hmm. of course we should not also overestimate the effect of meditation there are many studies which are still not very methodologically sound so there's a lot of things which are not very conclusive but I think altogether there are of course things that are conclusive and but we need much more research to be done and hopefully very uh, rigorously yes. mm -hmm. and one of the questions I've asked I've, I've done lots of interviews for this book and it's a mm -hmm. question I've asked every single person which was if if you were elected as the president of France or Nepal yes. or wherever it's home and you I will resign the next day <laughs> and and rather than make America great again your 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 thing was make France imagine well, I'm glad that my our president which I happen to meet a few times is okay. wants to make the planet great again so what can we, <laughs> what can you wish so I would like to make the planet great again and all sentient beings great again and eight million species of animals great again instead okay. of wholesale massacre of six million animals every hour yes all day every day every week every year so that's uh, totally unacceptable mm -hmm. uh, so there's plenty of misery among humans that we could remedy so then whatever people are in power they should have the same amount of care that they have an amount of power yes and you're 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 vegan and you've and you're you, you've you've um, written books about that and the thing that i noticed with i have two of my children are vegan and i noticed that in the 1980s veganism mm -hmm. was quite angry and yeah, uh, bleak what? and now now veganism is very colorful and attractive and delicious and yeah I was at the Davos World Economic Forum and there was a dinner it's called impossible food and they made some synthetic uh, very delicious looks like, tastes like meat I mean I don't need it to taste like meat <laughs> at all but it does taste like meat yeah. and it, it, it all this hundred times it's not meat and so and this uh, this thing is taking off taking off very fast mm. in California apparently they got a huge uh, Lot of budget to increase that so yeah it's getting somewhere so what do you think that movements like the movements around climate change can learn from how they present their arguments in the terms of way that veganism well, uh, is growing know, very quickly yeah so you know this is mostly a lot about the the imagery and the way of communicating and joan rockstrom was one of the environmentalists that i admire most you know he did he was um, one of the main scientists to conceive the planetary boundaries mm. under which we can continue to prosper. He said that environment has failed to communicate enough um, so that the public doesn't get discouraged and also to communicate enough that the solutions are there. They are absolutely there. It's just a matter of applying them. Mm. So that's what is even more frustrating. But the fact that we are not applying them, he says, is a failure of properly communicating and changing the narrative, the cultural narrative. Mm, mm. So Idos is an incredibly brilliant person, but he says that we have to really make special effort for changing the narrative so that people can you know, adhere to that view and mm. then put those means into action. But it is possible, but of course, no, we're not doing it now. Mm, mm, mm. So that's the issue. So it's funny because there's both, not funny, but there's a both like a doomsday scenario, there's a way to prevent that and still 
we're not engaging into it. Mm-hmm. So that's where something has to be done. Mm-hmm. Because the, he says, they all say now, the technical means we have oh, it. Completely, yeah. So that's a um, kind of big challenge. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest challenge of the 21st century by far. Mm-hmm. Because everything is linked with that. So my, my last question was that we we seem to in the West we have a real aversion to boredom, and you know if you're getting a lift and there's more than two floors, everybody gets their phone out. What do you think in that moment where we think, oh, I'm bored, I'll get my phone out? What do we lose when we fill? Well, you moments? see, I remember a friend of mine who was a Buddhist practitioner we were waiting for quite some time at the doctor's waiting room, and then a friend, other friend said, oh, sorry, you waited so long, and he said, I was not waiting. So you cannot be bored if you are not waiting for something else to happen. Mm. That's the problem. I love waiting in the airport. First, nobody, usually I'm quiet, I have nothing much to do, I cannot start a big work. And trains, I love the six, seven hours trains, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just a quiet time, what's wrong with that? Of course, if you are obsessed with hyperactivity, and then you, it can be the opposite of flow. You know, flow is the, you engage in something that is not too difficult, not too easy, so you get carried on. In mm-hmm. the, but of course, if you are waiting in a line, it's not very conducive to flow, unless you have an inner flow. Mm-hmm. And that's what people are missing, I think. Mm-hmm. The outer flow is mostly linked with activity, you know, painting, doing surgery, climbing mountains, sailing, or whatever. But I talk with Xinxiang Milai, who is the one who did, sort of um, defined that concept of flow, which mm. is wonderful. Yeah, that's and you can apply everything to meditation except the physical action. So if you can get it in your flow, then you are not waiting anywhere. Well, how can you be bored? Mm. Mm. Uh, so boring is someone, people who have not realized you know, the incredible richness of uh, the, the just resting in the mind. Mm. Mm. So that's it. And in, so, in particularly in Western I culture, we have a lack of that. I cannot even imagine being bored. <laughs> or if, if I'm caught by accident, finding out that I'm bored, just precisely waiting in the long line at the airport, it's a bit different. I'm, I'm just not happy to the idea of maybe missing the flight and have yeah, something yeah, to yeah. do. But otherwise, I'm totally happy to be there. So if I find myself, this, this should go faster, and if I know I have plenty of time, I don't have, there's no consequences, and they say, why should I be bored? I mean, there's nothing to be bored, so I just you know, do some mental practice, mm-hmm. recite some prayers or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wish there would be enough time to be bored. <laughs> My ideal situation is 24 hours bored all year round. <laughs> Thank you. In my sitting on the balcony of my hermitage watching of the Himalaya, <laughs> if you call that boredom, that's good, fine enough with me. I watched a beautiful video I, I saw online of you going to visit a woman in retreat in a little hut somewhere. Oh, that was the, yes. What do you call that? Uh, this is a guy from National Geographic. Yeah, that. that was very beautiful. She, and she, the lady who just went, you know, with did this uh, meditation courses or apps called Imagine Clarity. Okay. You may mention that. And... Um, so, yes, it's about all not getting bored. Yes, I think a lot of people would imagine if they were closed in a little... By the way, it's called Imagine Clarity. <laughs> but this, I didn't give the name. <laughs> okay. So, she just... Well, you must have seen that. I did, yeah. I saw it when so, I she ran that company and uh, did the whole courses in French and English about meditation. Okay. They called me to do that. And the benefit goes to our immediate organization. 
So imagine clarity if you are interested <laughs> in any. Uh, and then the other of my friends, of course, are involved. So at least we can say it's not a lightweight meditation courses. Mm. It's uh, really going more in depth and the different kinds of meditation. Why should I meditate? Uh, on what? No, no. Yes, why should I meditate? Is it possible mm -hmm. to change? And on what? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, why should I meditate on what and how? Okay. So I should meditate because I'm not in optimal, optimal state. On what is the mind and how then the techniques are described in this imagine clarity. Mm -hmm. So like that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care. I'm very grateful.